All right, Brother Justin. Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42? Genesis chapter 42. We are uh, working our way through the story of the life of Joseph. Now, Joseph is a, a man who is a, one of the 12 sons of Israel, Israel being one of the, uh, the early ancestors of Jesus um, brother of Judah, and Jesus, of course, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We've followed Joseph through and seen that he has gone through some difficult things in his life. Um, Joseph started out very, very well. He was his father's favorite son. His father had 12 sons and one daughter, and there was one that he loved more than all the rest, and that was Joseph. Now, I understand that this will be outside the realm of experience for all of you, but maybe you've heard that sometimes when parents play favorites, it causes problems. Um, it started out bad enough for Joseph because his brothers came to hate him. His brothers came to hate him so much that when he said that he had been given a dream by God that said that he would rule over them, that they said, we're going to kill him. Joseph comes out one day, he's uh, kind of a tattletale, so even though he's the youngest, his dad sends him out to uh, inspect the work of his brothers. Uh, he goes out one day, and he is looking for his brothers, but they're not where he thought they would be, so he goes further on to find them, and when they see him coming, they say, behold, this dreamer comes. Let's kill him, and then we'll see what will become of his dreams. They take him, and the oldest brother, Reuben, says, no, 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 we're not going to kill our brother. Let's throw him into this pit. They throw him into a dry well. Now, Reuben is thinking he's going to come back later and rescue Joseph. He doesn't quite have the moral character to stand up to his brothers, but he thinks later when they've cooled off, I'll take care of it. But when Reuben comes back, he finds out that his brothers have already sold Joseph into slavery because they realized the only thing that not having their brother around was getting some money for it. So they sell Joseph into slavery. He is taken in a caravan out to Egypt. Egypt, he comes into the warden, the police chief, essentially, of Egypt's house, Potiphar, and he lives in Potiphar's house as a slave. But God is with him. And so even though he's a slave, he becomes the slave that's in charge of all the other slaves. It says that everything except what the food Potiphar ate was Joseph's business. Potiphar says, I come home, I make sure that I put something in my mouth, and everything else that happens in my house is you. Joseph becomes so well trusted. But unfortunately, Joseph had something working against him. Uh, we don't know how long this took. We know he was 17 when he was taken into Potiphar's house. But at some point, Joseph comes, and uh, he, catch, he catches Potiphar's wife's eye. Potiphar's wife uh, sees him and says to him one day, lie with me. Joseph says, no, I won't do that. I, uh, God, I will not sin against God in that way. I won't sin against your husband in that way. He's trusted me. Uh, Potiphar's wife is very persistent, though, and over time continues to come after him and continues to come after him and continues to come after him. Then one day, uh, Joseph comes in to do his work and is in the house alone with Potiphar's wife. And uh, 
Again, as a common sense rule of thumb, being somewhere alone with someone of the opposite sex, especially with that kind of background, is trouble. Now, Joseph didn't have a choice. He's doing his job. But he comes there, and it turns into trouble, believe it or not. She uh, comes up to him, says, lie with me, grabs his shirt, and rips it off. Joseph runs away. And when he runs away, Potiphar's wife starts thinking. She thinks a little more, and then she screams. And when people come in to hear why she screamed, she says, Joseph, that uh, Hebrew slave, tried to rape me, and he left his shirt here. Uh, Potiphar comes home. Here's what happened. He is in a difficult position. Because on one hand, he knows Joseph's character, and uh, we'll assume he knows his wife's character too. But he can't just let something like this go. So though his right was to have Joseph executed, instead he puts Joseph in the prison underneath the warden. Now, who does the warden work for? Well, the warden works for Potiphar. So he keeps an eye on Joseph and sets Joseph away. Now, his, Joseph's integrity, his faithfulness to God, pulls him through. Our, when we studied that, the, the takeaway I wanted you to have was that you need to have the kind of character that when someone says something about you, nobody believes it. You need to live in such a way that there's, that when somebody says, did you hear what he did? People that know you say there is no way. There has to be some other explanation. And that's the way that Joseph lived. Joseph gets into the prison now. So he's, he's gone up, he's gone down, he's gone up, he's gone down. Things are not going so great. And, but in the prison, it says the Lord was with him. And so Joseph becomes the world's first trustee. He becomes the prisoner in charge of the other prisoners. Things are going splendidly. And then one day there is an attempt on the Pharaoh's life. And so the butler and the baker for Pharaoh, the people that test his food for poison and test his wine for poison, are both thrown into the prison. They both have a dream, you remember. They both have a dream, and the butler has a dream that he brings three branches of grapes to Pharaoh and gives it to him. The baker has a dream that he has three baskets of bread on his head and the birds are pecking them out of, his, out of his baskets. As he has this dream, uh, he go, he, they come to Joseph, and Joseph tells them, I'll tell you what your dream means. Butler, your dream means that in three days, you're going to be back where you were. Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and bring you back to serve him again. The baker likes this, and he says, well, what does my dream mean? And Joseph says, your dream means that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head in a noose and the birds will pick the flesh off of your head. Baker did not like that dream so much. The butler said, uh, Joseph said to the butler, remember me when you go back to Pharaoh. I didn't do anything to be here. I was kidnapped out of my land. I was accused falsely of a crime. Remember me. Get me out of here. The butler says, oh, I'll remember you. And if you know a little bit about human nature, maybe you'll know that when the butler didn't need Joseph anymore, he forgot Joseph. And so Joseph languished in prison. Until one day, now, and Joseph comes in and he hears that Pharaoh has had a dream. Pharaoh has this dream that nobody can interpret. And then the butler says, oh, I remember a guy who interprets dreams. And he calls Joseph up. Pharaoh has had this dream that Joseph interprets. He explains it means that there will be seven years of feast 
and then seven years of famine in the land. So they need to have a plan to use the feast years to prepare for the famine years. And the Pharaoh says, there is nobody better qualified than you. So Joseph, you are now second in the kingdom only to me. You will be at my right hand. Everyone will bow the knee when you come by, and you will be in charge of this great food program. So Joseph went from up to down to up to down to up as the prime minister of Egypt. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, this famine has been global as far as the ancient world knew. Everywhere they knew about was suffering from this same famine, and that includes Canaan, where Joseph's brothers are. Let's read in Genesis chapter 42. It says, Now, when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. Joseph, uh, Jacob says to his sons, his uh, 11 sons that are remaining, what are you all doing standing around here looking at each other, staring at each other for? There's food in Egypt. Go get it. So that we can live and not die. Verse 3, and Joseph's 10 brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren. For he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. Give you a little bit of background here. Israel, uh, who's Jacob, same person. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They're in alphabetical order, in order of when they were of the generation. So that's easy to remember. And uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which is still in alphabetical order. Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Joseph. Okay, so you can remember who's who. Israel and Jacob, same person, had two wives. And if you remember that, there was a, a scandal there with some favoritism. Uh, he wanted to marry somebody, and his, uh, the one he wanted to marry had an older sister. At the wedding, the, his father-in-law got him drunk and tricked him into marrying the wrong daughter. Uh, he, it's, a, it's a fantastic story uh, in a really, really terrible way. It, it, I don't know. I can't, can't shake my mind off of it. I know we did it. Uh, fairly recently, but I, I still, every time I think about that story, I imagine the conversation that Laban has with Leah and says, look, the only way anybody is ever going to marry you is if they think that you're your sister. It just, and so if, if you're trying to figure out why there is some family dysfunction, Leah, the one that the dad said, you know, we're just going to have to get him drunk. That's the only way anybody's ever going to put a ring on your finger. Um, Leah is the mother of Joseph's brothers. Rachel, who Joseph really wanted to marry, is the mother of two of his sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Now, Joseph was his favorite. She died giving birth to Benjamin. So Benjamin, uh, he's kind of got mixed feelings about Benjamin. But now, as far as Joseph, as far as uh, Jacob knows, Joseph has been dead for a very long time, 13 years. And so Benjamin is all he has. And so he says, I'm going to send my other brothers over. I'm going to send the, my other sons to go get food, but I don't want anything to happen to Benjamin. Sometimes people read this and they kind of imagine that, you know, Benjamin's just a little boy, but uh, apparently that's not true. Um, uh, I mean, apparently he's in his early 20s in all likelihood. 
And so he, he comes and he says, I'm going to send the rest of my sons. So if you assume that at this point, after one of his sons goes missing, dies, as far as he knows, that Jacob has learned his lesson about favoritism, you would be wrong. He says, I'm going to keep my favorite son here. And as sin usually does, it causes him more heartache, although he doesn't know it yet. So he says, I'm going to keep Benjamin here with me. I don't want any mischief to befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So they go to Egypt to buy corn. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? Here, let's get this here. Joseph sitting on the throne. People come into Joseph to buy grain. When, he come, when his brothers come in, he recognizes his brothers like that. He's got 10 brothers. He sees them all there in front of him, and he knows who they are. In fact, I imagine that ever since they threw him down a well, their face has been pretty well implanted in his mind. But they don't recognize Joseph. Now, there's two reasons for it. One reason is, of course, he looked different. Egyptians shaved and Hebrews didn't. Um, you know, he's 13 years older than he was and everything. Actually, I, well, he, he, I guess he's uh, 20 years older because the famine's been going on for seven years now. Uh, so he's, he's much older than he was. But the real reason is they never expected to see him there. Have you ever seen somebody out of context and didn't recognize them? You see somebody and you say, well, who are you? And they, uh, that happened to me. This is kind of embarrassing. Um, <laughs> We were here doing the clothing drive for the flood victims. And my neighbor, my next door neighbor came in, right here. I walked up and introduced myself. He was like, I live next door to you. Well, (laughs) hey, Joe. Um, But I didn't recognize him because I wasn't expecting him to see here with a bunch of clothes, you know, Uh, dressed differently and stuff that I'd seen him and everything. You just... Your brain is not in all places at all times. And so sometimes something kind of sneaks up on you. Um, Maybe you you see somebody and you think, I know them from somewhere. And you just can't figure it out. Uh, We went out to dinner last night and that happened to me. I was like, who is that person? And of course, you know, Colleen's like, oh, in sophomore year, you had high school English with her in second period. And (laughs) this is her name. This is her younger sister. Um, You know, I don't, I don't, I can't keep track of that. I'm not sure exactly that I went to high school for sure. It's all a fuzz. Um, but you, you don't remember people. You don't recognize them. And so Joseph's brothers come in, and they are not expecting to see the brother they sold into slavery on the throne of Egypt. They are, of course, sure that he's died by now in the hard labor of slavery. Certainly, when the famine got bad, slaves didn't get first pick of the food. They assume that Joseph is long dead, and if he is alive, he is certainly not sitting on the throne of Egypt. So they come in, and they bow their heads down. And Joseph doesn't help the situation. He's rough with them. You know, he's rude with them. Um, And, of course, part of me says, well, wouldn't you be? Uh, But he's, he's testing them right now. They've got a problem. Their problem is their guilt. 
Now, I, I need to clarify guilt because our society has kind of gotten guilt mixed up. There's two things. There's guilt and there is a guilty feeling. Okay? Um, if you touch something hot, the feeling that it's hot is the feeling. It's the burn, the burning feeling. The blisters on your hand are the burn. Now, psychologically, it, it, that happens physically too. Sometimes it gets split. You know, you uh, touch something, uh, you, you get uh, pepper juice on your hand. And it feels like it's burning, but it's not burned. You've got the burning feeling, but no burn. Sometimes you've got the pain, you've got what should be pain, but no pain feeling. Uh, my uh, grandpa Mike had a nerve damage in his mouth. Um, and so he liked to go to the dentist and tell them he didn't want any pain medicine. And they say, are you sure? And he starts to dr- they, and he says, yeah, I'm sure. Starts drilling and he would make noises and stuff and uh, pretend he was just toughing it out, but he couldn't feel anything in his mouth. So they were hurting him, but he couldn't feel it. Now, same thing psychologically, same thing with your conscience. Some people, their conscience burns when there is nothing to burn their conscience. You know, some people have got a conscience that is just so oversensitive that they uh, won't handle it. Um, I'll, I'll use my dear wife as an example. Colleen um, was telling me about how when she was a kid, she, uh, they, they, she, her mom, uh, they went to New York City. And she had to leave some, she was only allowed to take one stuffed animal with her. And when she came back, uh, she felt so guilty for the stuffed animals she left behind that she couldn't play with them anymore. She just couldn't look them in the eye. Now, she did not do anything wrong by leaving those stuffed animals behind, but her sense of guilt was hypersensitive there, right? Little kids. Adults do that. You know, they're adults that if they do something, it may be perfectly fine, but they've had their mind trained. They've been told, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that so much that they're oversensitive. Uh, people in abusive relationships, that happens a lot. They feel guilty for things they didn't do wrong. <laughs> then there are people on the opposite extreme. There are people who are numb. You know, they may do things wrong and don't feel anything at all. You know, uh, con- your conscience like a thermostat. It functions where it's set. If your thermostat's broken, there are people who can do whatever you know, says, uh, and not recognize any sense of guilt. So they can have the, they have the guilt, you know, if, uh, we, since we brought up the abuse situation, you know, somebody may not feel bad for what they did, but they're still guilty for what they did. <laughs> They've got the guilt for the thing they did wrong, but not the guilty feeling. The abused oftentimes has the guilty feeling, but no actual guilt. Now, obviously, they ought to come together, right? You ought to have a guilty feeling when you're guilty, and when you're not guilty, you don't have a guilty feeling. But we are so messed up as human beings, you know, sin and different experiences we've had have messed us up so badly that sometimes there's a disconnect. Joseph's brothers, for the last 20 years, have had a guilt problem, but not much of a guilty feeling problem. They're numb to it. Until things start to get hard. Isn't, isn't that true? You know, when things are going good, you have a very short memory about your own faults. When things start to go bad, maybe you start to filter through your mental, oh, hmm, maybe I brought this on myself. These two different things, your guilt and your guilty feeling, the feeling of the burn and the burn. So Joseph saw his brethren, he made himself strange to them. 
And he spoke roughly to them, and he said, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them. He remembers that they would all bow down to him as the dream he had had 20 years earlier. And here they are all bowing down to him. (laughs) He says, well, God worked this out so far. And said unto them, you're spies to see the nakedness of the land. You're come. You're not here uh, to buy food. You're spies. That's why there's 10 men, 10 strong men here. And they said unto him, Nay, my lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. You know, you imagine you're standing in Pharaoh's court, surrounded by guards, and the guy on the throne says, No, I think you're a spy. Um, You know, you don't say, Well, excuse me, I have rights, right? You know, uh, Reuben didn't say to Judah, Get out your phone. I want you to record this. Listen to this man talking to me. You don't have any rights. There is no appeal, you know. Pharaoh says, Off with your head, it's off with your head, right? If Pharaoh thinks you're a spy, it doesn't matter if you're actually a spy. (laughs) He does what he wants. And so this second-in-command guy sitting on the throne says, you're a spy, and they they get nervous, and they start defending themselves. Nay, my lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. We're, We're all brothers. We're honest men. We're not spies. Well, there's two truths and a lie, right? Uh, we're all brothers, that's true. We're not spies, that's true. We're honest men, well, maybe not. And so you, you imagine when Joseph hears that, you're just trying to control his face. They say, we're honest men. And he said unto them, nay, but to see the nakedness of the land, you're come. He says, no, you're not, you're a spy. And they said, thy servants are 12 brethren and the land of the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is not. I said, look, we're all brothers. There's, there's 10 of us here. Our father's back home. One of our brothers is with him and one of them's dead. Oh. You know how to deal with a liar is get them to keep talking. There is no liar, one, that can resist keeping talking, and there's no liar that can keep his story straight, can, tell the, can keep a convincing story for very long if he keeps talking. So Joseph just says, no, you're spies. And they start arguing, and they say a little more. He says, no, you're spies. And they start arguing, and they say a little more. They just can't help themselves. Um, that's one of the things, you know, with the police chaplaincy writing. One of the officers was telling me his favorite thing to do is uh, to make small talk with people he pulls over. Because they'll just start confessing to things. And they just, just keep talking, you know. Um, the, uh, we had a, a call recently where there was the guy in his uh, assault charge. And he just started saying, well, so did you, you know, did you have a gun? He said, no, I didn't have a gun. I just stabbed him. <laughs> huh. <laughs> and that's what happens with Joseph's brothers here is they have been expertly interrogated by being told they're spies over and over again until their mouth gives them away. And now that Joseph is brought to their minds, I imagine the guilty feeling starts to prick. And once the guilty feeling starts to prick, God's going to use that. This is really, really neat. Watch this. So in the very next verse, the... Lost my place. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
And Joseph said unto them, this is it that I spake unto you, saying, you're spies. Look, I told you you're spies. Hereby ye shall be proved. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go forth from hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you're spies. He says, look, none of you are going to leave here until your younger brother comes. So I want you to pick which one of you is going to go get your younger brother, and the rest of you are going to stay. Because when your younger brother comes, that's going to prove to me that you're telling the truth. Now, that's pretty foolish. As far as a test of figuring out whether or not someone's a spy, getting them to bring one more person to tell the same lie is not that helpful. But of course, that's not Joseph's plan at all. Joseph wants to see his brother. <laughs> he, ha- he hasn't seen his younger brother. You know, here's all of his half-brothers that threw him into a pit and tried to kill him. And the one brother who wasn't involved, his younger brother, his full brother, is the one that he hasn't seen in 20 years. He says, I I want you to bring Benjamin to me. But of course, he can't just say that. So he sets him up with a little scheme. But it's also a test. It's also a test to see, do they value themselves more or their brother more? Have they changed at all in the last 20 years? Would they sacrifice Benjamin for themselves? It's a good test. And so that's, what it, that's what's really effective. So, you know, of course, I think Joseph's brothers probably are sitting there thinking, well, this is dumb. We just get anybody. But they certainly can't say that to him. <laughs> you probably need a better way to tell if we're spies or not. It's maybe not the approach they want to take. So they just go along with what he says. Watch. So he, he puts them in prison for three days. And give them a little taste of what they put him through. And Joseph said unto them the third day, this do and live, for I fear God. He said, here's this do and live. This is kind of interesting. Um, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where uh, the man comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He says, uh, keep the commandments, do this, do that. He says, I've done all this from my youth. What do I lack? And uh, he, he goes through, says, you must love your neighbor as yourself. This do and live. Jesus quotes this verse. You remember then, of course, the man says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the man goes away uh, depressed because suddenly he has to love everybody. But he quotes this verse, which is so interesting, that Jesus here associates himself with Joseph. He associates himself with this moment. This do and live. He said, here is your simple test. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses. But bring, me your, but bring your youngest brother unto me. So shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. So he says, I won't keep all of you and send one. I'll keep one of you and send the rest. Maybe he's been thinking about what will be a good test. And this is it. Will they trade one brother for themselves? And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. They start talking to each other, and they say, We are so guilty. We wouldn't listen. 
when he was in the pit crying out for mercy. And so now there's no one who will believe us when we cry out for mercy. When we cry out for food, they won't listen because we didn't listen to Joseph. We're being punished. Now, I will say that uh, it is bad theology to assume that anytime something bad happens that you're being punished. You know, the good things happen to people for no, for no cause of themselves. Bad things happen to people. We mentioned that this morning in our Sunday school classes. The, the, the Joseph is a perfect example, of course. He didn't do anything to deserve what he's going through. He's not being punished. However, sometimes when bad things happen, it is God's way of getting your attention. So they say here, oh, we're being punished. We are in big, big trouble. So Reuben answered them saying, Spake I not unto you saying, Do not sin against the child and you would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. He said, to get rid of our guilt, we have to pay the penalty. They've got confession here and the recognition that a penalty must be paid. Because guilt, you can't, by getting rid of the guilty feeling, you don't get rid of the guilt. So the only thing that gets rid of the guilt is for the punishment to be paid and confession. You can be punished, and if you don't take responsibility, you're still guilty. You know, somebody goes to the electric chair saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, it wasn't my fault. Well, they're still guilty. Somebody admits fault and avoids punishment, they, have not, they, haven't, made a, they haven't made restitution. You know, if, you don't make, if you're not willing to make restitution, you're not really sorry. If I steal your phone and I say, I am so sorry, but I'm going to keep it, well, I'm not sorry, right? If I don't make restitution, I'm not sorry. If I say, I'm sorry for the way I treated you, I'm sorry for what I said to you, you stupid, you know, <laughs> then I'm not really sorry. If I don't make a change, then I haven't repented, I haven't turned. And so to be forgiven, it's to turn and go the other direction. You know, we come to God and we say, God, I want you to forgive me, but I'm going to keep doing what I did before. I just want, you know, you to forgive me. Well, there's no, no credit there. That's why Jesus said, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. If I'm holding grudges against people, God knows that I don't really care very much about forgiveness. And he says, well, I'm not going to forgive you then. So here, Reuben recognizes, the oldest brother recognizes, there has to be restitution. He says, here we are. His blood is required of us. With life for a life. Brother for a brother. So he, of course, sees it a little differently than Joseph sees the test. Here's kind of interesting. Verse 23. Joseph has not spoken directly to them this entire time, we find out. He's been speaking through a translator. So when they start talking amongst themselves, they probably hired a translator with them when they came in. When they start talking amongst themselves, they don't realize Joseph is listening to every word that they're saying. Now, So Joseph, this is interesting information for him. He finds out that Reuben was not involved. Verse 24, And he turned himself about from them and wept, and returned to them again, and communed with them, and took from them Simeon, and bound him before their eyes. Joseph at this point can't take it anymore. He he leaves the room and goes to cry. And you you imagine the the emotional buildup of 20 years. For years he's been thinking, how is it that all of my brothers hated me? 
How is it that all of them work together to throw me into this pit? How is it that they've forgotten me and abandoned me here as I suffer, as I go through slavery and prison and false accusations and everything? How is it that I couldn't even count on my own family? You know, maybe some of you have been in that kind of a situation and you imagine that emotional tension that he's got. And then when he finds out this light of hope that Reuben, his oldest brother, tried to stop the whole thing, it's just, it's just this emotional break. And he has to leave the room to go and cry. He's very human. But he comes back in and he has Simeon tied up. He picks the brother to stay. Well, who's Simeon? Simeon is his second oldest brother. If his oldest brother wasn't involved, he knows who the ringleader was. And that's the one who gets to stay in prison. He sends them out for this test. Because Reuben, of course, here he knows his heart. But the others, he still doesn't know if they've changed. Then Joseph commanded them to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. And thus did he unto them. He still loves his brothers. (laughs) He's been paid for the corn. And he says, put the corn back in their bags and put their money back too. And they don't know it and they leave. So he, he, he extends this kindness to them. And he says, and give them food for their journey. And they laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. And when one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn, he espied his money, and behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And one of the brothers opens it up, looks at his bag to get the the corn for the donkeys, and he sees in there his money sitting on top. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? They, so in a normal circumstance, when this happened, they would have said, Wow, look at the way that God has blessed us. God's God just worked this all out for us. But their guilty conscience, they look at it and say, Oh, it's punishment, it's judgment. If you see problems all around, and you think everybody's about out to get you, that tells me more about you than it does about your circumstances. Their consciences are now seared so hard that everything that they experience is painful. So what has God done to us? You know, are we going to be punished as thieves? What's going on? So when your conscience is there, your guilty conscience must be heard. God will get your attention. God will get your attention. And we see in verse 29, And they came unto Jacob, their father, into the land of Canaan, and told them all that befell unto them, saying, We'll jump down. We don't need to read them telling what we just read. But, of course, they explained to him what's happened. Explained to him how they want their brother. How the, the, the man on the throne wants their youngest brother. And how when they emptied their sacks, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and they were afraid. Verse 36 then. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have you bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me, he says. You've taken away, every time you all leave, I lose a son. You were out 
shepherding. Joseph went out to check on you, and he died. You went out to get grain. You lost Simeon, and now you want Benjamin too. So I wouldn't trust you with my pet hamster. Everybody I send out dies. Now, of course, he's not being rational. He's being more rational than he knows. He doesn't know they're actually guilty. But in his grief, he is just so angry. And in Joseph's mind, uh, Jacob's mind, I'm sorry, to give you a little bit of credit for him, he probably assumes that uh, Simeon is long dead. He assumed that as soon as they left, they killed their brother. They're not keeping their brother. They're going to kill him, too, because they believe he's a spy. And all they want is one more spy to catch. So he says, Reuben spake unto his father, the oldest one, the one who was against it, still taking responsibility, saying, Slay my two sons, if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. Reuben says, look, let me have Benjamin and kill both my sons if I don't bring him back. Now, of course, it's terrible. It's very much like when Lot uh, told the people beating on the door, take my two daughters. It's It's not the right thing to do. It's the cry of desperation of a man who doesn't know what to do. So he says, look, I'm so sure I'm going to bring them back. You can kill my sons. And he said, Israel said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in which he should go, then shall you bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. He says, what good would that do? If I lose my son, what good would losing my grandsons do? He says, but if I lose my son, I couldn't take it anymore. You'd kill me if something happened to Benjamin. I cannot handle any more grief. I want you to notice something about guilt. There had to be a substitution, and there had to be confession. But just any substitution wouldn't do. You know, killing his sons would not, would not undo what they had done. That doesn't make any sense. But remember here, of course, that this is a picture that although these things literally, factually happened, it's a picture of something else. My life could not take the place of your sin. Your life could not take the place of my sin. It is not, your life is not that valuable. My life is not that valuable. <laughs> I deserve to be punished for my sins. You deserve to be punished for your sins. The tree lies where it falls. But of course, there is one great exception. Jesus' brother Judah's great great jo- spoil it. Joseph's brother Judah's great 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 grandson Jesus comes as God, as the God man, to die in our place. And so while Joseph's nephews dying would not undo the sin of Joseph's brothers, Jesus dying. Satisfied at all. And Jesus rising again gives life. But you see here very plainly is his brothers had a guilt problem. And their guilt problem was not their guilty feelings. Their guilt problem was their actual guilt. But nothing they did could take away their guilt. Doing good things does not take away your guilt for doing bad things. 
if uh, one of my very simple illustration, if I gave you some water, and I said, will you drink this clean water? I said, well, yes, I will, I will drink that clean water. Well, here, I'm going to put, oh, just a little bit of arsenic in it. Stir it in. Will you drink it now? Well, no, I won't drink it. It's poison. Say, okay, okay, okay. We've got some uh, lemonade powder. It's delicious here. I just put a little bit of arsenic, but I've got a bunch of lemonade powder I'm going to put in. So now this is going to be some sweet, delicious lemonade. Will you drink it? No. I won't drink it. It's still poisonous. But wait, there's more lemonade than arsenic. What's your problem? How many people think they're going to stand before God and say, there's more good than bad. What's your problem? Of course, I use this illustration every time I drive in Houston. You can tell I've been to Houston because I always want to use this. If I get into a fit of road rage, kill somebody. And I go and I stand before the judge. He says, what's your plea? I say, well, judge, yes, I did kill that guy on 45 yesterday. But if you had seen all the people I didn't kill, you would understand. I had a lot more mercy than justice yesterday. That's not how it works, is it? You're not on trial for the people you didn't kill. You're on trial for the people you did. You will not stand before God for all the sins you didn't commit. The good doesn't cancel out the bad. You don't get a chicken fried steak and a salad because it all washes out, right? You stand before God, and God says, did you keep my regulations? Did you follow me? Of course. First commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. God says, okay, was I number one in your life? said, well, you know, sometimes, was I number one in your life? No. So what does that make you? An idolater. You jump down, uh, I mean, even to the, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Oh, that was a close one. No, I haven't killed. And of course, Jesus says, if you've hated someone, you've committed murder in your heart. If you ever hated anybody, Jesus says, oh, you're a murderer. He says, the, seventh, the sixth commandment, thou, the seventh commandment, sorry, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you've looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever lusted? Oh, it says you're an adulterer. Don't covet, you know, don't steal, don't covet, don't lie. So you stand before God, and God says, okay, what do you plead? You say, well, I guess I'm a blasphemous, murdering, adulterous, lying, uh, and God says, well, what do you think is justice for an adulterous, lying, blasphemy? Really, all those crimes come to one crime, treason, against the king, against God. And so God says, for that, you deserve to be cast away from me forever. But, 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 but. That guilt is very real, whether you have that guilty feeling or not. But, my son, Jesus, has taken away all of your guilt and all of your shame. He's been punished in your place. Where if you will confess, like the brothers confessed and said, yes, I did it, yes, you're right, it was wrong. And believe that Jesus is your substitute, not the sons of Reuben, not yourself even. You believe that Jesus died in your place and you say, Lord, forgive me. God says, I'll give you a new heart. 
I will take you from the pit of the slave to the throne. Joseph's transition will have nothing compared to you. You will go from being dead to being a son of the living God. That's the offer that God makes to you this morning, is that if you will recognize that you've sinned, you'll recognize that you've done things wrong and it was your fault, and you believe Jesus died for you, then he will take away all of your guilt. Now, I won't say that your guilty feelings disappear overnight. Sometimes they do for some people. Sometimes God works like that. But your guilt will be gone. And when your guilt is gone, getting rid of your guilty feelings is just a mental problem. Just learning to recognize what God has already done. This morning, you are freed from all of your guilt. You just place your trust in Jesus. Let me tell you, I've got one story. I love stories. I told this one about a year ago, and I'm hoping you've forgotten it, because I love it. The New York Times reported on this in about 1997. There's a, uh, a lady who was in an apartment complex, and she complained to the apartment manager and said, I hear a baby crying. The apartment manager said, there's no baby crying. There's no babies around you. I hear a baby crying. She waits a little while longer and complains again. I still, when are you going to do something about that baby? She calls the police, and the police come in and start investigating, looking for a baby. And in her closet, in the trunk, they find the mummified body of her daughter she had killed, accidentally beating her, killed her 20 years earlier. And they did DNA testing and found out it was her. Um, her older brother, who had witnessed it and kind of blocked it out, once this all came out, remembered and testified against her. She was convicted of murder in like 2001. Now, I don't believe in ghosts. That little girl that the mother killed was in the arms of Jesus that whole time. She wasn't crying in that closet. But that mother heard the crying of her own guilt. You cannot block out your guilt. You cannot shake it out. You may be able to deaden it for a little while, but it will always come back. You cannot just deal with your guilty feelings and say it'll be good. You have to deal with your guilt itself. And the only one that can deal with your guilt, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. Let's stand. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. Our musicians are going to come forward. We're going to give you a chance to respond. If you've never been saved, you've never placed your trust in Jesus, you carry guilt with you this morning, you don't have to leave here with your guilt. You can leave it right here with Jesus. You step out and say, I want to be saved, and I'll pray with you right now. God, you can cry out to God where you are and say, Lord, I believe Jesus died for me. I know that I deserve punishment, but I ask for your forgiveness, and God will change your heart, and your guilt is all gone. As we say. Page 396.